You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, enemy, someone who hates me, who wants to destroy me? I, I want them far from my family. I don't want them to get anywhere near my family, let alone bring them into my family. Well, last week, our sermon was called Out of Your Mind in the Best Way Possible. And that sermon was part one. This message today is a continuation of the exact same passage And as wild as this sounds, we're going to see this morning that the message of reconciliation is the story of our faith. This is exactly what God did for us. And you're going to see by the end of this message today, by the end of this passage, this is exactly what God wants you to now do with your new life in Jesus Christ. And I've preached well over 100 sermons here as a pastor of your church. And I have never done a to-be-continued sermon quite like what we started last week. My goal last week was for it to stand alone. So maybe you didn't even really notice that. We didn't end on a cliffhanger or anything like that. We ended with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So as much as my goal was for that sermon to stand alone... I want this sermon to connect. I want you to see both parts together. Because in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 5, we saw how you can look at life through a different lens than everyone else. The key was how we do that. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, verses 11 through 13. And then secondly, compelled by the love of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, verses 13 through 15. And we talked last week about the two lenses that people will approach their faith through. You have the moral lens and you have the redemptive lens, right? You guys remember this? The moral lens is, is you approach scripture to um, think about, all right, God is truth. God is good. I have to align myself with him. I have to find out what's right and what's wrong. All very, very important things. God is truth. I need to, I need to. Follow that and embody that. Absolutely, yes, you do. But if your starting point is for Scripture is just moral conformity, and how can I get in line and be who I'm supposed to be? And you know, how do I shore shore my marriage up? How do I bring peace into my home? How do I do this or that? All really good things that the Bible addresses. But if that is the be all end all, it begins and ends there. You are eventually going to get yourself into some very precarious positions. Because that's not the way we approach the Bible. We saw last week that we cannot do any of those things without Jesus Christ. You have to, ha- you have, to have Jesus. We must have Jesus to be like Jesus. So the correct lens to approach your faith is not the moral lens, it's the redemptive lens. God's word and the message of good news isn't just how you can be better and be blessed. That's a byproduct of a reconciled relation where you have been redeemed by, from, the, from the payment and the consequences of your sin. 
So part one was the how. How do we live life through the redemptive lens? And as much as I, 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 I emphasize that, the, the need for that and how to do it, part two is just as connected. In verses 16 through 21, go beyond, and now we're going to look at the, the motivational how. Okay? What, beyond the how into what changes. Looking at life through the lens of redemption, part two, is totally about the motivation put into motion. So in these next six verses, there are three therefores. Therefore, three different times, each one of them teaches a specific change that happens in you, in your redemptive story arc. And you need all three, because if you only have two of the three, you're going to find out that you're not going to be able to do what God calls you to do, to make an enemy family. You have to have all three. So this is not just good advice from a moral lens perspective. This is the good news. So let's back up to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Would you read that with me? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first thing that changes with this redemptive lens, number one, is you change your outlook on people. You must change your outlook on people. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is our first point today. So if you know the fear of the Lord and you're controlled by the love of Christ, you are no longer working for him. You are working with him and, and through his Holy Spirit. According to the lost world, you may be out of your mind, right? But if you're out of your mind, if you're beside yourself, it is for God. And if you're in your right mind, according to everyone else, going with the flow, you're, you're, you're just going to be doing what everyone else does. When you are compelled by the love of Christ, you are freed up from living for yourself in the never-ending hamster wheel of the pursuit of happiness. 
And then you find contentment in Jesus Christ. Your relationship with your creator fulfills you in a way that nothing else in creation can. This is very important that we get this. It starts vertically with our relationship with God, who he is and what he has done to us. And then once we are compelled by that love, our relationship with our creator changes us. And then our horizontal relationships with each other, all of our relationships with other humans start to change as well. It all begins to align when we see that redemptive lens. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So the takeaway here is Christ's love changes the way we look at other people. It's the only thing, really, that can change the way we look at other people. To regard someone according to the flesh is to look at outward appearance. It's to view a person through the lens of the temporal here and now. What can they do for me right now? How can they get me to where I, I want to be? Or, or, or how do they bring contentment and enjoyment into my life? What have they done for me? When we look at people that way, and you view humans solely on the human flesh level, you're missing the soul, you're missing the spirit that will live somewhere forever for eternity. And this is teaching that the way you view people completely depends on how you view Jesus Christ. It's totally dependent upon that. Do you remember Paul back in Acts, back in his, his backstory in the book of Acts? Super religious person, consumed with the moral lens. Paul once looked at Jesus Christ according to the flesh. He saw his humanity alone. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. And, and to Paul, Jesus was dangerous because Jesus came, came to fulfill the law. And he turned everything upside down. He completed his rescue mission. But Paul, Paul could not grasp that Jesus brought joy and peace and healing that outward morals could never do. So to Paul, Jesus was a problem. And, and, and Paul made a goal to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He looked at Jesus like Jesus was there to take something from him rather than look at Jesus like Jesus was here to give him everything. Absolutely everything. But that's the same lie that has been around since the garden, the garden of Eden. Satan came as that serpent and tempted Eve, like, look, you, you can't eat of that one tree. It doesn't matter that like everything else is yours. Like, look at this one thing you can't have. God, God is holding out on you. He, you won't surely die. You'll be fine. We are tempted through those same lies. A lot of times people think, well, if I give my life to Jesus, I'm not going to be free to be myself. The truth is nothing could be further from the truth. You can't be who God created you to be until you find Jesus Christ and you make him your savior and you find that relationship with him that comes through reconciliation and redemption. But look at the second half of verse 16. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we do that no longer. Now, before we dive into exactly what this means for you, let me clarify that this idea, um, this, the idea is don't limit 
your view of Jesus solely to his humanity. Now, of course, we can't diminish his humanity. You're going to see later on here, very soon, we need Jesus to be fully human. And Jesus is 100% human. He, he limited himself in, in, in his incarnation. You see Philippians 2. But he was always fully God. Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I know it doesn't make any sense to us. We can't grasp that. We can't fully understand that. But we don't need to fully understand our God, and we shouldn't be able to fully understand our God. If, if we could, then, then it would be a man-made concept, right? I, I'm thankful that this is way beyond us. We can't explain our faith, and it's not a product of man. But more on all of that later. Right now, let's start with this. You can't just look at Christ according to the outward appearance. Because Jesus isn't just flesh and blood. He's obviously more. He is the Savior of the world. And once you see Jesus for who he is, he is the divine God, the Son of Man who came to take away the sins of the world. Once you see that, you no longer view people according to the flesh. You start to look at people the way Jesus looked at people. You see eternal souls desperate for redemption. The fear of the Lord and the compelling love of Jesus increases within you your capacity to be empathetic, to be gracious, and to be kind to broken people. That's where it comes from. If you view people through morality alone, there is an in crowd and there is an out crowd. And that is true. But you can't just stop there. Because once you add the lens of redemption, you see lost souls who need a savior. And you remember how Jesus pursued you and he sought you when you were far from him. And you no longer see just sinful people. You see people who are hopeless without Christ. You, you see people who have a need for mercy just like you received yourself. This is the only way you change your outlook on people. And I don't know about you, but I find it very easy when I'm not focused on the gospel. I find it very easy to look at people according to the flesh. That's, that's a really easy pitfall for me. For me as a Christian, the temptation is no longer for me to look at Christ according to the flesh. Lots of people do that. Lots of people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's the first hurdle. They don't view Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They view him as a good man or a good teacher. But C.S. Lewis taught that when you take what Jesus said and what Jesus did, you really only have three categories for Jesus. Either he was a liar and he was lying about who he was and what he was saying, or he was a lunatic because he said he was God. He said, all who thirst come to me and I will give you rest. Or he was Lord. There's really no fourth fifth or sixth category. I know that our world today makes all these different categories. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is uh, a socialist. Jesus is, is this or that. Or He's an environmentalist. I mean, we have all kinds of Jesuses in the world today. There's really only one. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. So, viewing Christ according to the flesh is how the lost and dying world view Jesus. And if that's you, I beg you to listen to what Jesus actually said about himself and what he actually says about you. He came to save you because he wants a relationship with you. 
But for those of us in the room this morning, I know it's most of us who already know Jesus as the Christ. We don't view him according to the flesh. Our struggle is going to be now viewing other people according to the flesh. Especially people who don't believe like I believe and who are getting more diametrically opposed to me and my beliefs. And when I see people... Um, taking things that I love, and I see them corrupting it or politicizing it, and I see enemies dividing people so they can conquer them with their own radical agendas according to the flesh, I personally get upset. I don't know if I'm the only one in here, but it rubs me the wrong way. And if I can be totally transparent here today for a minute, um, I'm a big basketball fan. I, I'm a really big LeBron James fan. Me and, me and LeBron James graduated from high school the exact same year, okay? So I've followed this guy since I was in high school. I saw, his, saw him on the cover of Slam Magazine as a junior in high school. I followed him all the way through his career. He's an incredible player. Personally, I get bothered when I see the stuff that he's standing for, the things that he's speaking out against, because what he is saying doesn't line up consistently, Right? There, there are things that he believes in that he's taking a stand on, and then there's other things that are, that are way worse that he's turning a blind eye to, and he is, he is taking this approach to like whatever lines his pockets. That's the voice that he's going to use. And some of the things that he's saying are dividing our country, and, the, and they're contributing to distrust and the breakdown of structures. So what am I supposed to do with this basketball player who I, I enjoy watching? I've always, I've always loved this basketball player. Well, when I see them breaking down structures that he says he's there to protect, you know, that's a problem. But I can't view anyone, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a sports athlete, whether it's uh, the coach of my son's soccer team, I can't view anyone according to the flesh. That's not, that's not going to be helpful. Regarding someone according to the flesh means I get in the flesh. I look down on people, and I miss the fact that God has called me to be a reconciler. And maybe there's human beings who are doing similar things to you in your life right now. The love of Christ should grip you to the point that you no longer regard people according to just human standards. Life is far greater than what somebody said or did two weeks ago. There is eternity we are compelled by the love of Christ to live for him who died and was raised. We're no longer living for ourselves. And we can't look at people just as humans on a human level. Whether they are in the news headlines or whether they are making my 9 to 5 just a taste of Hades, it doesn't matter. I no longer look at them in simplistic, this moral lens of what have they done. They're horrible. They make me upset. No, as, as a Christian, we have to go beyond that. Think about the spiritual warfare that I'm engaged in. There's a battle of truth in your mind. I'm waging it. It's being waged against me. And if a person doesn't know Christ, they have very little chance to see the truth the exact way I see it. There's a veil over their hearts. We saw in 2 Corinthians just a few weeks ago. It's going to be very easy for them to get swept away with the matrix of lies that permeates our culture, that, that is affecting everything all the way down to our educational system. So what do we do instead of regarding them to the according to the flesh? What does the passage say? 
we view them the way Jesus Christ views them. We pray for them. I pray that a Christian will encounter that person. Because in this present life, everything that we can see and touch and hold is temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So change your outlook on your loud neighbor. Change your outlook on the misguided celebrity. Change your outlook on the annoying mother-in-law. Or change your outlook on your incompetent manager who is selfish and not as smart as you. And find some compassion for their soul by looking to Jesus Christ and what he did for you. You have to ask yourself and answer the question, do I regard people according to the flesh? Or I do, look, do I look beyond morality and what's right and wrong, and I do I look at them with the same heart that Christ has for me? Now we're going to move into the next three verses here. We've arrived at another therefore. So the second thing that changes about you through the lens of redemption is your new outlook on people comes from your new identity in Christ. Read verses 17 through 19 with me. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So to make an enemy family, here's the next thing that has to change. Number two you have to embrace your new identity. Embrace your new identity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The love of Christ changes our outlook and it changes our identity. And we're not talking about minor tweaks here. Okay? Uh, my wife likes to add things, make minor tweaks to our house all the time. And uh, mar I'm married to an interior designer, okay? And there's a lot of things I expected to change about my life when I got married to Julie, but one of them was what, that I was never expected, uh, or never prepared for, really, I never expected, was the number of light fixtures and, like, picture frames and, and like, wallpapering on the ceiling, just everything that we have to do in the house. And you would think I'd be a pro at it by now, but I'm still not, okay? I'm not. I still have to, like, probably... Take the screw out the first time. Maybe you have to angle it a little bit differently, or maybe we just move it over like just a smidge over here to the left, and then it's centered. Okay, minor adjustments, it's not what we're talking about here. That's not what God does in our life, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just like, oh, let's just a quarter inch more over here, or a new, new, paint, a new coat of paint on the wall will do the trick. No, this is an interior designer's dream. This is like, let's knock the wall down. We're blowing the whole thing up rebuilding this thing brick by brick, custom, brand new. That's what we have in Christ. The old has passed away. It's in the grave. The new has come. Jesus called this the new birth. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So we don't need to turn over a new leaf. We need to be transformed by our creator and made into a new tree. Just a completely new creation. The old has passed, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. To reconcile, let's get a definition of that word. It's to settle or resolve differences to restore friendship or harmony. That's what it means to reconcile. 
And that's what God did through us, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God was broken because of sin. God is holy. He is not like us. And because we are sinners, we could not have fellowship with God because of our sin. That there was disharmony. There was, there was a breaking of the relationship. It was broken. But Jesus Christ gave his life to cover the payment of our sin penalty. He sacrificed his life on the cross, came back to life three days later, later paid for our sin penalty, reconciled a relationship with our Creator. And if you could jump down to verse 21 here for a minute, because this verse goes into detail about this. Verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is the biblical doctrine of imputation. Jesus took our sin, and he exchanged our sin, and he replaced it with his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is imputed into every man, woman, and child who confesses their sin. What a glorious truth this is. God reconciles those of us who are in disharmony and rebellion, living our own way, and he makes us his friends. He made you and I. We were enemies of God. He made us his friends, and he tells us elsewhere in Scripture. Not only did he make us his friends, he adopted us into his family. Adoption is such a beautiful thing because it pictures the heart of our God. And if you remember how I said Jesus' humanity was important, if he wasn't fully man, he could not have paid the price for the sins of mankind. So Jesus' humanity is vital to our redemption. Romans 5 talks about this. We could take a quick Romans doctrinal commercial break here. But Romans 5, 17 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. You are righteous in God's eyes if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He sees not your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So imagine with me just for a second here. You come to the throne of God. All right? You have these unearthly creatures called the seraphim that are, that are around the throne of God singing and crying out, holy, 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 constantly. You have Jesus sitting at the right hand. You are at the throne of God, if you can think about this for a minute. And God the Father looks at you in the eye. You make eye contact face to face. What do you think, in where you're at right now, what kind of face does God have when he looks at you? Does he have a loving smile, just bursting with joy when he sees you? Or does he have like a half smile, half frown, somewhere in between? Because you know you're not where you need to be. What do you see? What do you picture? How do you picture God looking at you? The Psalms talks about how his face 
shines upon you. The picture of like sunlight beaming with joy. God looks at you according to this passage. How does God look at you? What is his face? There is a smile there because he loves you. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see the mistakes you've made. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed into your heart. That's what he sees. He has made you a new creation. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for all of us in this room here who are haunted with regret, maybe you have a cloud of shame hovering over you. Deep down, when you think of God, you hang your head a little bit because you feel like God's just putting up with me. You know, he's, he's going to change me. He's going to make me better at some point in time. But you're missing the redemptive lens and you're solely focusing on the moral lens. And you've forgotten how God views his children. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who's in the doghouse. That's not possible. God looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. And this is very good news for all of us in this room. You have been reconciled and you now have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Talk about radical grace. That is grace that is greater than our sin. So your fundamental problem isn't you getting your life lined up. I need a better job or I need a better kids or I need better this or that. I need a better spouse. Like, no, that's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is your sin. And if you take it to Jesus Christ, he covers it. And you have no other problem that can even come close to the problem that was resolved and reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, our sin separates us from God. But with Jesus, we are reconciled to God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gift of redemption. It's reconciliation of turning an enemy into family. One more Romans verse for you. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. It's saying the exact same thing, but I love it when Scripture, just on top of Scripture, makes it more clear. So Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's the word again. That's what we have. Can I get an amen for that? We have reconciliation. So does it grieve God when we sin? Well, yes. Yes, it does. But we are his children. We are in the family. God the Father wants us to thrive just like every person in this room who has kids wants the very best for their children. It's our parental instinct to want that for your kids. But think about this. What does a loving parent do when their child is going a wayward path? Any parent who loves their child, when their child is making a bad decision, does the parent just be like, ah, well, that's their problem. You know, I'm just going to have to go invest in someone else who would be more worth my time. Parents don't do that. 
right? When, when my boys have a temper and they have problems and I see that my temper is in, in them and I'm like, oh, wow, like, what, what, am I, what do I do? I'm drawn to them. Like, I want to get on one knee and just be like, hey, guys, look, this is, what, this is the truth. Don't, don't go down this path. Like, I lean into that. As a parent, you pursue your child. You do everything you can to lean into them and to draw them back and to point them to the truth, right? That's God our Father. He loves you. You're his child. He, he sees you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and when you're going the wrong way, he's ready to correct you with the heart of love. Children go through awkward stages, and we don't just wait for them to pull it all together until we love them. That's not how it works. We love them right where they're at. God is not in love with some future version of you. A lot of Christians think this, oh man, if I get this right and that right, 10 years from now, the future version of me will be somebody that God is, can love and God can appreciate and God can use. That is not the message we see of redemption. That is the moralistic view. God sees you and he sees Christ in you and he reaches out to you and he's ready to redeem you and to restore you and to make a difference through you. That's the heart of the Father. And we have the best Father. Some of us in this room have good fathers. Others, others of us, we hear this father language and it brings, it opens up some wounds. The, uh, the, God is a father who loves you in a perfect love that the best father in this room can't touch, can't even come close to. His posture is he does not count your trespasses against you. Jesus already took the wrath for that. And his posture is to run towards you as his new creation. So what's left for you to do? Embrace your new identity. Looking at yourself as a victim is destructive. Anyone who's honest with you will tell you that. Looking down on yourself is destructive. You can't move forward until you look up to your Father. God, with His face shining upon you. We are always tempted to look around on the horizontal level. And to soak in the lies that Satan in this, this, in this world will hurl at you. They're destructive. We have to align our hearts with the truth of what God reveals about us. Embrace your new identity as a child of the king. I like to think of it like being Robin. Okay? Dick Grayson was an orphan. He didn't have a very bright future, right? But Bruce Wayne came in, Batman. He adopted him. And, and when he adopted Dick Grayson, he didn't just rescue him and say, all right, Dick, now you can sit in Bruce, Bruce Wayne Manor and, uh, Wayne Manor and, and sip hot beverages that Alfred the butler is going to make for you on this cozy couch over here in comfort land. No. He said, I want to have you work alongside me now. Right? And he became a force for good. The rescued became the rescuer. He joined arms with Batman. Paul has one more therefore in this chapter. There's a new outlook, there's a new identity, and in verse 20, there's a new job. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Your new outlook and your new identity comes with this new job. And this is point three. Engage in your new job. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
We don't just need rescued, we become the rescuer. We don't just receive the message, we become a messenger. All of us who are in Christ, we are its ambassadors. Remember earlier in this, this chapter, I'm not living my life for me anymore. I don't just work for me now. I work for him. I work for the king. An ambassador represents the interest of another person. We were talking about this in life group on Thursday night. It was awesome. An ambassador doesn't just stay at home in Wayne Manor or in the comfort zone of the upstate. Maybe, maybe you're called to go somewhere else. This is why Christians go to foreign soil as missionaries, because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate answer. And he's called us to be an ambassador. Don't just stay camped out in the comfy motherland. We can't afford to do that. An ambassador leaves his country, goes to another country, and represents the interests of the king. Your new job is an ambassador for the kingdom of Christ. You represent him. And God makes his appeal through you. Talk about keeping it in the family, all right? He didn't just save you. He adopted you into the family, and he gave you the keys to the family business. That is your role now. God is making his appeal through you. I hope you're taking this seriously. We have to live our lives, our daily decisions, with this calling at the forefront. Where are you going to make roots? How are we going to raise our families? Where are we going to, how are we going to interact with people in the classroom, in the office? The number one goal shouldn't be to make money or to earn a degree. The number one goal is to represent Jesus Christ and to shine his light and to show his love. We don't think the same way we used to think we have a higher calling, right? The old school church used to talk about it in a different way. We don't really use the same language anymore, but if you read Christian authors from church history, you see this theme over and over again. There's two manifestations of the church. The church triumphant and the church militant. Does anybody ever read some church history books and, and notice the old church talking in it in this way? Uh, the church triumphant are all the believers in Jesus Christ who have died and now they are with Jesus Christ. They have finished the course. They have kept the faith. They have received their crowns, their rewards. They are with Jesus, praising and singing him with all the angels and all the saints. That's the church triumphant. The church militant is the boots on the ground. Now, that, that term militant has kind of been hijacked by people who have the moralistic lens. They come hard down on people like, no, this is right. And they just bite people's heads off. That militant attitude without love has kind of tarnished the word a little bit for us right now but the idea is you have a calling this is your job as an ambassador and the church militant is a soldier for Jesus Christ fighting a spiritual battle with spiritual warfare in this present life so we are to carry the love of Jesus Christ into every conversation into every room that we go into we're on a mission that's how, the, that's how the church for centuries called themselves, the church triumphant and the church militant. I'm going to fight this good fight by carrying the love of Jesus 
all the way until the day that I die and I see him face to face. Worship team, you can come in, uh, come back up here. This is a very simple message though, right? It's not complicated. You see the three therefores, you see the three, the three new aspects of your new identity, your new calling, your new outlook. That is the ministry of reconciliation. We're not supposed to live this life for ease and pleasure. We're not on a cruise ship. It's not, that's not it. We're supposed to live for the kingdom of Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation. And Paul's been talking about this for a long time. He's putting a cap on it right here. Eternity is just a breath away. It's not about getting to the safest place and just resting there. It's about getting to the most strategic place and waving that banner. So you have to ask yourself, what am I doing with my life? Is it the pursuit of happiness? Or is it the message of reconciliation? If you are called to Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ. God makes his appeal through you. In your school, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your family. And we can't go any further without, without me making an appeal to you this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you don't know Christ, you can trust him today. I remember that passage in Acts where, where Peter is preaching, and in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit descends on those who believed that Jesus Christ died for them to pay their sin penalty, and that by faith trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection, in that moment, the moment of belief, they repented and they turned. They didn't even pray a prayer out loud. They just believed in their hearts and they received the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to do that today. I, I implore you to do that. You can get on your knees right now. You can stand up and and pray. You, you could do it any way you want to do, but you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You saved me. You died for me. You took my sin. I want to offer my sin, and I want to receive your righteousness. That's salvation. Maybe you're here and you've already done that, but you've, you've lost sight of a few things. Your outlook on people has been purely fleshly. It's what are they doing to me right now? How do they affect this? How dare they cross me like that? And we're missing the fact that we're not called to look at people according to the flesh. We should be looking at them the way Christ looks at us with an eternal soul. Maybe you need to focus on your new identity. And just quit wallowing in the mistakes you've made. Maybe the things that other people have done to you and, and you've let that, you've put that upon your own shoulders and, you, and you, you're viewing yourself as a failure. Stop looking at yourself in these man-made centric ways and look at the way God views you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sent his son who knew no sin to die for you.
to give you new life. So if you knew Jesus as your Savior, repent and believe. If you got your new outlook, you got your new identity, what are you doing with your new job? How are you handling your new calling? Stand up with me. We are reconciled. We go from enemies to family. Some of us family members are, you know, we're all different. We all know family, right? We're all, we're all different. Some of us are more go-getters. We have variety in the family. But we all have different gifts. We all have the same purpose, the same passion. We should be driven by love to be ministers of reconciliation. Let's sing about that. Now.